0: Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Wednesday, March 4th, we're studying Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 20. Jesus begins his fourth major discourse in the Gospel of Matthew today by placing in front of his disciples a surprising object lesson, a child. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today. We have with us regular guest, Pastor Nate Hill. Pastor Hill serves at St. Michael's Lutheran Church in Winchester, Texas. Pastor Hill, welcome back to Sharper Iron.
1: Good morning, Pastor Apple. Great to be with you today.
0: As we get started this morning, Pastor Hill, give us some context in Matthew's gospel. Where have we been? What do we need to know going into the text for today?
1: Today, as we come to Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 20, we find ourselves in one of the five discourses of the gospel of Matthew. These discourses um, can be thought of as various uh, sermons that Jesus would have delivered or just, uh, in this case, almost a children's sermon beginning out. Um, We find ourselves um, not too long after Jesus' transfiguration, um, but we find ourselves also before Jesus has begun his final trek south out of Galilee through Judea to Jerusalem for his death and his resurrection. And today, Jesus will be in Capernaum in Galilee uh, to deliver these words to us. Um, Each of these five discourses in the Gospel of Matthew is um, marked off by the fact that each discourse ends with the phrase, and when Jesus had finished which uh, for us today is going to take place in chapter 19, verse 1, which is short of where we're going today. So we have about half of this fourth discourse of Matthew to look at this morning. And in this discourse, we're going to see Jesus shifting between two main thoughts today, going back and forth. And those thoughts are the fact that God has a great regard for children or what he calls the little ones, and that God
0: is very serious about sin. And those two topics, I think, would be related to one another. That the fact that God is concerned about His little ones, He would He would be concerned about the seriousness of sin because that's what would separate His little ones from Him, right? Exactly.
1: Yeah, um, sin separates us from God. Uh, sin separates us from one another. And the last thing that that God desires from us is to have any separation from us. He created us originally to be in a deep. Uh, Unity and communion with him, and that was, of course, broken in the fall and restored for us in Christ. And because of that deep cost of that restoration, um, the last thing we want to do is to run right back into that sin from which we've
0: been freed. Let's go ahead and take a look at the text then again. Today we are in Matthew chapter 18, beginning at verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. That's the text for today, Matthew chapter 1, excuse me, Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 20. So, Pastor Hill, uh, the text starts at that time the disciples came to Jesus. Now, just previously in the, in the chapter 17, Jesus has gotten done with this this temple tax, and he called his disciples sons. And so it seems that that they've maybe uh, let that go a bit too far. Where where does this question about being the grace in the kingdom of heaven? Where's that coming from?
1: So this is a theme that we see repeated in the gospels that the disciples, as they follow Jesus, tend to believe that they are going to end up with some sort of high regard or place of authority of their own that is independent of Christ and. Jesus has to constantly remind them that the path towards greatness is not greatness in the eyes of the world, but rather the path towards greatness is to follow in the same path that Jesus himself has first walked for us. And when we think about that, Jesus' um, very first act of entering into our human history is to humble himself, to take on human flesh, to submit himself uh, to being needy, to being a child even in his um, nativity, and then to... um, subject himself to all of the troubles that this world will bring on our behalf. So when they look at Jesus from time to time and say, here's the great rabbi that we will follow and we will become great in the eyes of the world too, Jesus constantly has to remind them that the path to greatness comes by means of humility. And the path to greatness is not something that we receive fully in this world, but something that we receive in the next in the kingdom
0: of heaven. So you mentioned Jesus would call his disciples to follow after him and in the footsteps that he's walked. So this, this question then, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, before we get into the object lesson that, that Jesus throws out there, which is important obviously, but what, what's the answer? Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven?
1: Right. They ask, they ask the question, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? We know Jesus isn't going to give them this object lesson in a moment, but we do want to answer that question clearly first. And the answer is obviously Christ is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> Christ, who today in the kingdom of heaven maintains his human flesh, his risen, ascended and glorified human flesh, as he stands there as our advocate, uh, sharing the fullness of humanity with us. He is clearly the greatest in heaven, for he is the one who has a righteousness of his own. We also become great in the kingdom of heaven by passively receiving that righteousness that he's accomplished for us. Not having a righteousness of our own that's worth anything for our salvation, but receiving it through baptism and faith, um, passively applied to us that covers over our sins uh, in such a way that when God looks at us, uh, he doesn't see our sins, but he sees Christ um, covering us over uh, like a robe. Um, And I use this image a lot of times on uh, teaching what we believe. And I I have my confirmation class and I I ask them, do you know why I wear a robe on Sunday? And they'll say, well, because you're the pastor. And it shows us that you're the pastor. I said, no, actually, The robe is a symbol of of our baptism into Christ. The stole is a symbol of the pastoral office. I said, but um, if we wanted to have an entire closet on the way into the church full of robes for everyone, um, it would be just as appropriate for every baptized person to put on a robe as they enter into the church, symbolizing righteousness of Christ that covers over all of their sin. Um, And that's a reminder to us all that that's the path to greatness, is, is following in the footsteps of Christ, receiving his righteousness um, and recognizing that this will not be manifest for us fully in this
0: world. So the, the greatness that, that would be ours in the kingdom of God then is not a righteousness that we earn, that we accomplish, but a righteousness that is given to us, something that, that we must receive. And, and I think that takes us into Jesus' object lesson that he puts in front of the disciples. He, he brings this, this child I mean, really, you've got an object lesson, a children's sermon, if you will, from Jesus. How should we understand, what's the point that Jesus is making here with the child?
1: So similar to the way that some of the prophets in the Old Testament would communicate via, say, a sign act where they would would do something uh, in the presence of people as an object lesson to show the message God would bring with them and then explain it, Jesus does the same thing here. And just the image I don't think should be lost. Um, I know some churches practice a children's message and some do not. Um, I do in my congregation. And I think most people who practice having a children's message will pretty quickly recognize that you're doing that children's message primarily for the kids that come forward. But oftentimes the people in the pew will tell you, um, I really understood what the readings were about today because of the children's message. Um, So Jesus is doing the same thing. He's gathering His disciples, his adult disciples around them, and he's placing a very small child in their midst and reversing the children's message um, from what we're used to, to teaching the adults here. So when they ask who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, it says here in verse two, and calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. We don't know how long he waited between the time he placed the child in their midst and the time he spoke, Um, but I wonder if there's a pregnant pause
0: there saying, you asked the question, Here's the greatest right here. And, and of course, it's a, a child because children are just so cute, Pastor Hill, and, and don't you just love, you have great memories of your childhood, right? This is, this is what we think of when we think of, of children of childhood, but maybe that's not the point of comparison that Jesus is offering here.
1: Exactly. The way that children were generally viewed in the ancient world versus the way that we treat children and regard them today is quite different. In the ancient world, children were, of course, cared for and loved and viewed as valuable, as a gift from God. Um, But they certainly weren't placed on a higher plane of significance than they had yet attained by their own growth. So when you look at children in the ancient world, in a world where um, physical labor was valued, uh, in a world where sometimes resources were quite scarce, um, a child is one who takes in much more resources than they're able to produce. So when um, a child is placed in the midst of the disciples, they are not seeing what is the natural object of their culture's um, desire, as, as it is today for us, we desire to go back to childhood, back to a simpler time. Instead, they were seeing a symbol of, of weakness, someone that would be difficult to care for, someone that would require more work than they would produce. And the idea in the ancient world is that childhood is, is something good. But it's something that exists for the purpose of growing beyond in the same way that we talk about um, moving from milk to meat uh, in a spiritual sense. That metaphor makes sense because it's naturally good to move from from milk to meat, from uh, weakness to maturity. Um, And that's the idea there that in the ancient world, they didn't look at their children and and see them as the object almost of worship in the way that we do today sometimes uh, with our own children, nor did they naturally see them as more virtuous than an adult. Um, they saw them as someone who had not yet fully grown or been uh, fully able to accomplish the tasks of this life that bring you into adulthood.
0: So, so there wouldn't be any memes out there with, with a, the wisdom of a child as, as something that an adult should aspire to. Exactly. Exactly. And that's why what Jesus is doing here is
1: so counterintuitive. We use children as props all of the time in society. Politicians do it. Commercials do it. Um, And Jesus is using this child not as a prop, but as a a lesson. And and Jesus is going to challenge their ideas of, of saying that childhood has nothing to teach us as an idea as adults. And he's going to say, no, it does have one thing to teach you. Uh, one thing that is instrumental to becoming greatest in the kingdom of
0: heaven. And so, so what, what is that? I mean, if you had to summarize, what's that one thing? What is it about childhood? Is, is it the weakness? Is that, That's what Jesus is making the point, that to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven is actually to be weak, like this child. Or is there more to it?
1: It's the idea of the weakness, but it is the idea of what naturally accompanies that weakness and need in a child that we're to emulate in our relationship with God. Oftentimes people have a struggle understanding whether children can be, um, be sinful. I think there are certain people in various uh, theological traditions that would say, oh, a child doesn't sin until they're a particular age. Uh, but even those people would not um, have a problem understanding that a child trusts and, and exhibits faith. We see that very clearly in the example of the way a, a young infant child will trust uh, his or her own parents. Uh, To see that their source of supply for all of their needs is something that comes to them from the parents that have been uh, given by God to care for them. The child can do nothing on their own. If you leave a child alone in a room for a long enough amount of time, that child can't survive. The child has to be interacted with, provided for by someone greater than and um, more powerful and more uh, full of, of resources and blessings than their own selves. And that becomes then an image for us. If we think that by attaining to adulthood or maturity that we then become self-sufficient, so self-sufficient, in fact, that we don't need God, we have uh, very clearly missed the point. um, And Jesus is calling us back to say that in relationship to God, you will always be like a child, always in need of what he alone can provide and that you cannot provide for yourself. And namely, above all else, that is uh, a righteousness that exceeds that uh, of our sinful human flesh's capability. So
0: dependence and need. This is what the child has that we have in our relationship to God. I, I was having a conversation just yesterday with someone here in the community in Smithville, a fellow Christian, uh, who, who was who was concerned that that he wasn't advancing to the next level of his Christian faith. He, he looked at at himself in his church and and saw that he went to church but but there were others in his church who were who were going above and beyond they were they were serving others in the church they were they were stepping up at at say a meal that the church was offering or or taking care of a neighbor in need and he was he was concerned that that he wasn't advancing to to the next level that that was that was the term that he used But, but it sounds like here jesus isn't talking about the next level higher but but he's inviting his disciples to go all the way to the bottom to to the level of childhood, to to humble themselves. That's a
1: a difficult and a persistent type of voice that we have in the back of our head that says, you're not where you need to be. Um, But this metaphor or this understanding of us as children of God, dependent children of God, um, reminds us that that's not the basis upon which God loves us. Can you imagine a child um, who went out and did something and didn't do it very well and went out and tried and did a little bit better? And every time they came back, perhaps every time that they brought home a drawing from school, they said, look what I did. It's better than yesterday. Do you love me now, Dad? Right? Um, we, would, we would rightly stop that child and say, I've loved you from the beginning. I loved you when you couldn't write your name. I loved you when I couldn't tell what those scribbles were. Um, and I'll love you uh, regardless of what you can produce. That's the kind of love that, that God has for us that we simply receive. And that's the kind of love that gives us a security uh, and a true hope and a peace that uh, nothing else can give.
0: And, and to think then that we would somehow earn God's love by drawing a better picture every day would be to fool ourselves. And, and Jesus says, if you don't turn and become like a child, you're not even going to be in the kingdom of heaven, much be, much less be the, the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So, so that sort of self-righteousness, that, that thinking that I can earn a righteousness of my own before God that is what actually would exclude us from the kingdom of heaven. Rather, it is this weakness, this humility of knowing that that everything I have comes from God. I'm entirely dependent on him. That is how I enter into the kingdom of God. Absolutely. So, so Jesus continues then. He says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. So you continue to get this, this very strong emphasis from Jesus that he loves these little ones, as he, or child little ones. are. So what, what should we think of? Jesus has actually put a child in their midst, but he also uses the term little ones. Is Jesus only talking about young in age, or is he talking about other people here?
1: Well, we're reminded here in uh, verse 5, whoever receives one such child, my name receives me. We're reminded again, of the way that, that Christ teaches that when we receive someone who is hungry and feed them and provide for their need, or is in any other kind of need and provide for them, we are receiving Christ as well. Um, and what this reminds me of, of course, and this speaks to that uh, gentleman you you mentioned earlier, it sounds to me like he felt like the only way he could serve God was within the, the bounds of his own church or congregation or worshiping you know, community. We're reminded here that in serving our neighbor, we are truly serving Christ. We are truly doing a, a spiritual and godly work. So the idea is, is, number one, you're not going to get greatness in the world by following Jesus. Number two is the path to that is not by climbing a ladder within uh, some kind of a spiritual hierarchy that uh, pulls away from the world. Number three is, is humility and faith. And, and vocation and serving our neighbor is what God would have us do. But again, not for the purpose of him finally loving us in the end, um, but because it's an outgrowth of the security that we have in the gospel. Uh, so again, this is one of those things when we receive a child, um, it's not that hard of a thing to do, is it? It's, it's something that we naturally do. I think of um, Sunday morning, um, my youngest son, Carter, went down the aisle, and put his arms out to one of our congregants and just ran to him. And that congregant picked him up. And it was uh, a high point for my son. And I know for that congregant too, because he had mentioned it later on, what joy that brought. Um, he didn't have to say, you know, okay, well, I guess I need to say uh, serve Jesus. So I'll receive this child. It's it's a natural disposition that's in us now. Because uh, the unnatural um, sinful nature is being displaced by the Holy Spirit that's been given to us in baptism.
0: Right. Yeah. That- and that's going to become apparent as, as Jesus continues on in the text that we are all little children. We are all little ones in the kingdom of heaven. And, and so the the bond that we have within the church is this bond of, of receiving each other as children and loving each other. And, and part of that love for one another, this is where Jesus starts to bring in that, that second topic that you were talking about earlier, the seriousness of sin. Part of the love that we would have for each other as little children within Jesus' kingdom is that we would not lead each other into sin. And Jesus has some very strong words for those who would lead a little child, a little one into sin.
1: Exactly. And we're going to pivot to that here in verse six, as this transition point comes. And I guess the only thing coming out of where we were previously that I would say is, I think we can envision this child that he's put in the midst of them for for the lesson we just talked about. I think we can envision that child staying um, amongst the uh, disciples, at least uh, through the next section or two of the text. Um, so let's be mindful of that as we read it, that they're looking at this little one in their midst as Jesus brings us to this next point about avoiding sin and avoiding leading others into it.
0: So the child's still there, right? And I, I think that's important for us to, to keep in mind. The child is still there. How how long he remains is it's not entirely clear, but I, he's there still. Mm-hmm. And, and Jesus says, whoever causes one of these little ones, maybe even motioning to this very child in their midst causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. It would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. That's that serious language. So Pastor there's there's two things here. I think we should address the, the seriousness of Jesus language, but maybe first Jesus here uses the term little one, which is is different from child. So is he only talking about those little in age, or, or maybe we're both tall, little in height? Or <laughs> or what does it mean to be one of Jesus' little ones, and then the seriousness of those who would
1: lead those little ones into sin? So again, the, the notion of being little in age and young, obviously, is the first application, the most clear one. Um, but we understand uh, from other portions of the scripture that we are to regard those as new, who are new in the faith, with a, an extra regard being careful not to um, burden their consciences by things that uh, our own mature conscience might not be burdened by. Um, we think in physical terms, again, that a time of need and weakness doesn't come only in our young age, but also in our old age. That's a point that um, is all too clear today, especially this week, as we, we notice there are viruses out there that are affecting um, those who are infirm or of or a weakened uh, physical state. Um, you know, what do we owe to people like that? Do we do we all retreat into our own homes, not serving them? Or do we owe them service, even though it might put us at some sort of risk? So, um, again, a little one is is anyone who has a need, I would say, above and beyond that, which is normal. And when you look at each one of us, uh, we're all little ones, uh, in a sense, um, that we all um, are far too easily. um led astray or, or not self-sufficient uh, to the full extent that we think we are so it does it is an idea that extends beyond just the way that we're going to interact with children
0: and jesus ha- children are very easily led astray mm-hmm. and, and so jesus expresses the seriousness of those who would lead the children astray or the little ones astray he talks about a, a millstone being hung around a person's neck and thrown into the depth of sea what's the picture jesus is painting here
1: well, the picture of, of a millstone in general, and there is one in uh, a town that that neighbors us, um, there's one on the town square, an old millstone that used to be run by a, um, oh, the big water wheels, you know, that you'd picture uh, in a millhouse along a river. And this one, at least as an example, it's about four feet in diameter. It's about two feet thick. It's got a center, a hole for a spoke to run through it and grooves that would go from the inside out as you'd crush the grain and it would it would uh, pulverize it into a small pulp and and it would come out the side i don't know the weight of this particular item i 've never tried to lift it um, but it it probably uh, it could easily be two thousand pounds so the picture here is um, that Jesus says sin is so serious that it would be better for you to fasten that around your neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea i mean this is almost uh mob language, swimming with the fishes type of, of stuff here, uh, he's using just a very clear and vivid picture uh, of, of the type of death that would be horrible and terrifying and saying, hey, that's better than causing one of these little ones to sin. So the question then is, well, why and, and what does he mean by that? So
0: <laughs> anyone who, who would teach a child the faith, anyone who would, would speak to a, a little one about Christianity, someone who's weak in faith, should be very concerned about speaking correctly, speaking truly, speaking what God has said, nothing more, nothing less, lest such such judgment. And Jesus intends us to take this very seriously. Perhaps we, we could remind people of this more often. Indeed, yeah. the <laughs> We have a cavalier
1: attitude often towards sin. It's a byproduct, I believe, of a misunderstanding of what the gospel is. Uh, the gospel is the free forgiveness of sins. Um, so we don't avoid sin in order so much not to go to hell. Um, although, you know, we might not want to be so presumptuous there either, because sin can indeed separate a Christian from that saving faith. It can, it's caustic to faith. Um, but we avoid sin because it, it is evil, because we understand and and fully come to know the terrible, um, awful consequences of sin when we look at our Savior dying for it. Um, and when we see that not as something light, but as something costly, um, we see that it was not sin in general as a concept, but my own sin uh, that sent Christ to the cross. Um, then we understand that this is a terrible thing to to walk away from, to turn away from. And above all else, um, not to allow the reign of sin to extend beyond where it is in our own lives to those who are weaker than us, who look to us and follow us. Um, so that's just an
0: incredibly important point. Oh. Serious sin, but a serious Savior, Jesus Christ. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on Worldwide K. If you're looking at the first half of Matthew chapter 18, Jesus fourth, the discourse in the gospel, we're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. Please stick around. Have you ever wondered if your investments could do more? I mean, a whole lot more. This is Rahima Kavuga, Synod Relations Manager of Lutheran Church Extension Fund. When you invest with us, you not only earn a competitive interest rate, but your investment goes to strengthen Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations through low-cost loans and services. To learn more, visit lcef.org backslash invest101.
1: Here is what our listeners are saying about KFUO Radio.
0: KFUO has been a part of the family, in a sense, for many, many, many years. We stayed home and listened to KFUO, and we loved doing that. Really appreciate all the work that goes into everything that you do here. For so many people, to be able to hear the gospel, what a blessing that is. To
1: leave a message on the KFUO comment line, call 314-996-1542. Worldwide KFUO.
0: On Wednesday's Bible study for Law and Gospel, it's during the season of Lent. So we will be finding a passage that has a Lenten theme. And that shouldn't be too hard, since every passage in the entire Bible is all about Jesus and our salvation. Listen to Law and Gospel weekday mornings beginning
1: at 9.30 on KFUO. Hi, folks, this is Matt Harrison, president of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Join us for the March
0: on the Arch, Saturday, March 7, a pro-life event for you to confess your belief that life is a sacred, sacred thing. Check-in begins at 11
1: a.m. and a rally at 1230, and then marching from the West End at Planned Parenthood to the Arch in St. Louis. Check out lcms.org slash marchforlife, lcms.org slash marchforlife.
0: Welcome back to Sharper Iron. On this Wednesday, March 4th, we're studying Matthew chapter 18, verses 120 with Pastor Nate Hill of St. Michael's Lutheran Church in Winchester, Texas. Pastor, El, prior to the break, we were looking, especially at verse 6, about those who would cause little ones to sin and the seriousness of that, a millstone being hung around a neck and thrown into the depths of the sea is better than leading a little one into sin. Then Jesus continues with the same topic of seriousness of sin, but now he, he applies it to those who would fall into the temptation themselves. And he speaks very graphically. Again, we've heard him talk about cutting limbs off, gouging eyes out before. Is he using hyperbole here? What What's the point of Jesus' language?
1: Again, it depends what we understand hyperbole to be. I think when we um, say it's hyperbole, what we hear is don't worry about it. Write it off as an insignificant statement. He was over making his point. He was getting dramatic. Perhaps he was hangry and hadn't had lunch. Instead, what Jesus is really doing here is is being deadly serious. So is he using hyperbole? I suppose in the technical sense, in the fact that he is making his point in such an extreme manner as to catch our attention, but not in the improper understanding to say that the point itself doesn't matter. So when he says... um, If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the the eternal fire. He means it. It, That is literally true. It would be better to do that than to be thrown into the eternal fire. The problem is that's not how it works. That's not the manner by which we avoid being thrown into the eternal fire. Um, But I suppose if if that were how it would work, uh, it would be better. But the real problem is, uh, if your foot causes you to sin and we lop it off, we've not fixed the problem because then instead of running at a full sprint into sin, I'm still going to just limp right into it.
0: So what's the real problem? What, what needs to happen instead of cutting off a foot or gouging out an eye? What needs to happen?
1: It needs to be a heart transplant, hmm. not an amputation of a limb, but a change uh, in the heart. Um, the heart, um, which produces all kinds of sin in man since the fall, um, because it's out of, from the inside out that, uh, that we have been affected by sin. Um, the cure then must come from the inside out. And to displace that place of, uh, of sin, that reign of sin in our lives, um, the only thing, the only one that can do that is the Holy Spirit uh, given to us fully and freely in baptism uh, as a gift of God. So what happens is the change in the heart, and then comes the change in the outward behavior and the outward um, life.
0: Right, right. It must be the righteousness that is not our own, the righteousness that comes to us as as little children who are entirely dependent upon God. That is what what is the problem, or that is the solution to the problem of sin. At the same time, though, Jesus' words do very vividly remind us how serious sin is, and the very serious consequence of those who would remain in their sin and and seek a righteousness of their own apart from the righteousness of Christ. It seems, well, it doesn't seem, it's true, that Jesus believes in the reality
1: of hell. Right. According to Jesus, sin is bad, not primarily, but it is true yeah. that it makes us feel bad about ourselves. Um, not even primarily because it theoretically breaks our relationship with God, although that is also true. Um, but here he reminds us that sin is bad because it, it leads us into a place called hell that Jesus himself clearly believes in, uh, according to the text. So it's become very fashionable these days to either believe in no afterlife at all, meaning it's just all a blessed nothingness, uh, a rest um, that we all just go into the abyss and there's nothing good or bad about it. Some people find some strange sort of comfort in that idea, but that's not a comforting idea at all. Um, but others, the more insidious idea is that there's a God out there who gives us heaven without a hell, right? That there's a reward but no punishment. Um, and and it's an idea that's very tempting, um, but it's an idea that clearly Christ himself did not believe in. So if we're to follow him and to view him as, as the authority and God's word is the authority, the idea of hell is not some solely Old Testament a concept that we might be tempted to write off. It's not just something that Paul said. Um, it's something that Christ himself attests to multiple times in the scriptures.
0: Well, why do you say that, that forsaking the the thought or the belief in hell is such an
1: insidious idea? It sounds so right. Hmm. It sounds so right to our natural mind. Um, if God is love, if God is good, um, if we have a natural predisposition to wishful thinking, which I think we do as, as humanity now, um, it's an idea that sells very well and very easily. And I think uh, back to many people I grew up with who um, I grew up in public schools, so I had friends from all kinds of different um, backgrounds and different denominational backgrounds. Pretty well all of them had some connection to a church. The vast majority of those today have have no longer maintained that connection to a church. And I haven't done a formal study, but I would bet uh, quite a large portion have probably not turned to a full uh, denial of any kind of spiritual life or afterlife at all. But quite a few, I would bet, have probably been swayed by this sort of notion. Not that they formally have studied it and ascribed to it, but it becomes what people somewhat naturalistically settle on in their own head. Um, so... It's it's important that we understand that our Savior, Jesus, saves us from a terrible reality. We don't want to dwell on it too much um, because it's not our ultimate destination as forgiven children of God, but we can't deny the reality that, that Christ attests to it.
0: Right. And and apart from the reality of hell, then what what need is there for Christ and His saving work? If it's just some sort of amorphous God is love, He's gonna going to save you no matter what, then, then, why did Christ have to die? Right. What, what was the point of Christ? There's no need for Christ. There's no real, for God loved the world in this way that He gave His only Son. Christ, it, yeah. You know. Christ is not a therapeutic
1: idea. Right. Right. He's not a means to better mental health alone. Um, He's a real, tangible Savior in real human flesh that was ripped and torn for our transgressions, that was raised in a glorified manner on the other side of that empty tomb. Uh, and his, his body still bears the tokens of his passion at the side of God the Father as he advocates for us in what will be our heavenly home. Yeah,
0: and he did that because he loves his little ones, his little ones who he desires above all else to bring to himself. And and Jesus continues with this thought of the little ones, speaking of things that, that Jesus believes in that maybe people have forgotten today. It's this matter of angels. He talks about the angels who see the face of the Father in heaven. What's Jesus talking about, Pastor Hill? Well, um,
1: I'm one of the few pastors who has a church named after an angel, uh, uh-huh. St. Michael yes. and St. Gabriel. They're the two angels uh, that are named clearly for us in the Bible, at least the two angels uh, that that are on God's side still to this day. <laughs> um, we know, of course, Lucifer, Satan, was, was a fallen angel. Um, the reality of angels is something that, that we often don't think about. We fall into one of two problems. We either think about it too little or too much. So, uh, the notion is here that Christ attests to this reality of, of a heavenly host of angels that are there. It seems as if to some extent, they may have duties over the little ones. Um, this is, I suppose, about as close as we get to the idea of a guardian angel in, in the scriptures. Again, it's unclear if everyone has one assigned or if they play some kind of a zone defense. Um, that's, uh, that's something that's, uh, an exegetical uh, question still, but we can take comfort in the fact that God loves us so much that uh, he assigns um, mighty uh, beings um, that are part of his created order, right? They are not divine in that sense uh, that God is, but uh, to attend to our needs, to watch
0: over us, to bring us protection. Hmm. And so Jesus then continues, speaking of the angels, he he goes on, he tells a, a parable about some sheep. Pastor Hill, you've, you've got some animals, so maybe you can enlighten. I don't think you have sheep, you've got cattle. But, but maybe you can enlighten us as to what Jesus is getting at with the matter of his sheep. So here in verse
1: 12, he says, What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And If he finds it, I say to you truly, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is the will of my Father who is in heaven, so it is not the will of my Father who is in who is in heaven, that one of these little ones should perish. He gives a picture of what happens really quite often uh, for those who have any kind of animals, uh, is that one of them goes off and is gone. Um, In my world with little calves, the the mama cows tend to lay them down up against the fence. They wake up and they roll over underneath it and they end up on someone else's property. So anyone who's had animals like this, you know you're going to be searching for one. The, The idea here, though, with sheep is they're not in the midst of a barbed wire fence in Jesus' world. They're out to pasture. The shepherds are having to keep watch over them, constantly counting them. When you notice one is gone, if you are to leave the 99 and pursue the one, what you're doing is you are putting at risk the 99 who are safe. And Jesus seems to tell this story, this parable, as if it's just obvious that any man would do this to go after the one. But I'm not so certain it is. Um, If all of my cattle got out and All of them but one was in one clump in one spot and one I didn't know where it was. I'd be hard pressed to leave the big group to go after the one. And the reason is this. um, The reason is at the end of the day, while they're a gift of God, um, a creature that God has given us dominion and responsibility over, um, they're going to be meat in the freezer um, in short order. Um, They're a, a commodity in that sense. Um, And while we are to care for them well and rightly, um, they're not a person. Um, Yet Christ reminds us in this story that the man leaves the 99 for the sake of the one because that sheep is not just wool and meat to him. That sheep, that little one that is strayed and is lost, is valuable as an individual. So he leaves the 99. Now, again, the idea I don't think is that he's putting at risk the 99 unduly, Remember, um, God can be present everywhere. Um, Sometimes when we think we are neglecting the one good for the sake of the other, God has an ability in his great, bountiful goodness to to attend to it all. Um, But the the idea is that when you find yourself like the lost sheep, there is one pursuing you. Um, When you can be the instrument of the one who goes after the lost sheep, you go after the lost sheep because they're individually valuable to God. Um, And it's just a very beautiful picture, pastoral picture in the sense of being out to pasture um, of what's going on here. And and here's the other interesting thing. If the child's still in their midst, and I can't prove that this happened, but I just sort of wonder if the kid got bored, (laughs) tired of standing in a circle and listening to all the talking. I wonder if he had happened to wander back off down the street Mm -hmm. and perhaps Jesus gestures to that little child as he walks away saying um what do you think of a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray
0: yeah i i you know again it, it it's not clear from the text whether that happens but i think it's a wonderful picture and and it's it's not bad for us to picture that in our minds of this child just sort of wandering off and jesus again using it as a very object lesson well what about that one that one who just wandered off what is what does God think of him? What does your heavenly father think of the one who's lost? And the the beauty of this text. And again, it's not it's not our, our human economics, or at least not our, our American pragmatic economics, right. right? Um we we're very pragmatic, and a ninety-nine percent is an A plus on a test. And you keep ninety-nine of your sheep, that's great, right? But but God's children are not a commodity to him. They're individuals whom he loves whom he gave his son to die for. And so he sends the good shepherd after them. And, and so he would send his church after them as well. This, this says something, I think, to the church as to how we should think of those who are little ones, lost ones among us. Indeed.
1: So here there's this notion of the two groups, the one that's often strayed and the one group that's there in the one spot that they were left. And I think the reminder to the church is this, that mission to the lost, whether that be one who was never in the fold in the first place or one who is in the fold and is strayed, um, it doesn't come at the expense of the gathered, right? We don't view church membership as a commodity. We're not all about counting dollars and noses in church. Um, instead, we, we view individuals that are valued by God gathered there as the thing. And again, then ministry to the gathered shouldn't come at the expense of mission to the lost, right? So if you're going after the one who's strayed, it's, it's not costing the faithful anything, right? In fact, it's, it's the faithful being faithful in doing that. Um, but just likewise, um, we can't focus so much on those who are there that we forget those who have strayed. Um, and again, I think the thing we should remember is that when one strays, they often stray slowly and over time. Um, the, a sheep, it puts its head down, it eats, it sees some grass a few inches ahead of it, it eats, it walks, it moves, and eventually it picks up its head and it looks around and no one's to be found. We wander into sin, but we often don't wander out. Um, so again, when one returns, whether that's someone who has not been to church in a year and they've, for whatever reason, come through the church door that morning, it's very important that we as a church remember um, that our attitude should be that of Christ, that rejoices over the one who is back, that says, we're so glad you're here, rather than where in the world have you been?
0: Right. Well, welcome home is, yeah. is the attitude of, of the church when those who are lost are brought back by by the savior jesus christ so as as the text continues then we we get to this part of matthew 18 that at least many in our circles pastor hill many pastors when they refer to matthew 18 just like that matthew 18 they're talking about these verses verses specifically verses 15 through 17 usually and and jesus here now Shifts the image, though I don't think he leaves behind the idea of a little one or a child, but instead of talking about the little one or a child in those terms, he talks about the brother who wanders off. So so what's going on here in, quote, Matthew 18? Right. This is, um,
1: maybe for those who have tuned in since we've read the text, this is the time where Jesus tells us the process that we should follow, when a brother sins against us. And that process is that first, when that brother sins against us, we go and tell the brother his fault between you and he alone. Um, if he doesn't listen, um, then you bring along one or two others with you uh, to establish the fact that this is not just your private opinion, that, that what's happened here is is something that requires uh, a turning and a repentance. Um, And then if he refuses to listen, then we are to tell that even uh, to the church. And then if he refuses to listen, then it says to treat him as a Gentile or a tax collector. In each place, the aim is that if he listens to you, then you have gained your brother. So again, the process that Jesus teaches is to deal with sin discreetly and privately in a way that will maintain the reputation of of the brother. Um, Yet ultimately, if that process ultimately fails due to hardness of heart, in the end, um, we're told to treat uh, that brother as a uh, Gentile or a tax collector. So this is enshrined in many church constitutions and the way you deal with membership issues. And it's important that we follow this process that is is laid out here by Christ, um, or he wouldn't have given it to us in the church. Um, and we practice it uh, evangelically, but also according to the way that it's been laid out.
0: Yeah, you, you've been calling it a process, and I'm not, not against that, but... But I think maybe the danger of thinking of it as a process or even a checklist is that we lose sight of everything that Jesus has already said Indeed. in Matthew chapter 18. How does the, the preceding context of Matthew 18 and even what we'll look at tomorrow in the parable of the unforgiving servant, how does, how does that help us do this evangelically, as you said?
1: Yeah, the, the one who is lost deserves to be pursued. They are obviously being pursued by God um, in that sense of being sought out. Um, but we in the church are often serving as that instrument that is, that is doing such seeking. So we do so with a heart of, of humility, of recognizing those times when we have been in that opposite position. Um, we do so in love, um, and, and we do so recognizing that there are so many off-ramps from this ultimate path of, of being finally lost um, and treated as a Gentile or a tax collector that God graciously gives that we want to usher that person, direct them to those, rather than secretly just be waiting to check all the boxes and write them off.
0: Right, right. When we see a person walking down the path that would separate them from God, or again, think of, think of what Jesus said in, in verses 7 through 9 about the seriousness of sin in a person's life. When we see a person walking down that path, what does the rest of the church do? pull them back. Right. And, and so one person goes after them, then two or three, then the whole church is is going after them, telling them you are walking down the path of separation from God, come back to us in repentance and faith. And, and if, if that person in hardness of heart absolutely refuses, Jesus says, treat them like a Gentile or a tax collector. Now, what does, what does that mean? Well, it means
1: two things. Um, number one, it means that there is a real change in the relationship. There is a real separation that has occurred, and when we recognize this, um, we're not so much creating the separation and the, the reality as much as recognizing that it is there and has become manifest. Um, so in that sense, uh, to say that they are to be a Gentile, as a Gentile or tax collector, Jesus is saying, these are the people who you naturally do not have that kindred spirit with, that bond of unity in the spirit, and recognize in that case that's what's happened with this brother. Uh, But then we also recognize the attitude that Jesus had toward the Gentile and the tax collector, that he would um, spend time with those who were outside of faith, um, that he would constantly uh, seek their own uh, spiritual good and salvation. So again, this is not shunning um, in that sense, that it's practiced in some uh, forms of extreme Christianity, I suppose. Instead, what it is, is a recognition of separation has happened, but a a continued hope uh, that the change in heart would
0: take place. Right. The, the proclamation of God's word to this person never stops. Exactly. Right. They, they may not be welcome at the communion table anymore because of this. But we still reach out to them with the word of God. We pray for them that, that this change of heart would take place, because as, as we'll see in a few chapters, right, Jesus is busy calling people into his vineyard, even to the 11th hour.
1: Indeed. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So, Pastor Hill, we've got just under three minutes here left on the morning. We've got three verses left. Give us what you got.
1: All right. Um, we're at verse 18, where Jesus says, truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That could be a program unto itself. Uh, something that's articulated in other places. But as Christ has now ascended to the right hand of his Father, he is not physically here on the face of the earth. And he entrusts to the church the authority to speak in the same authoritative word uh, that he himself would speak regarding sin and forgiveness. So uh, this is the possession of the church, the office of the keys, that is then entrusted by the church um, to its called ministers of the gospel to exercise on the church's behalf. And always this binding and loosing of sin is done solely uh, in accordance to the way that Christ himself would practice it, not on the basis of works and doing things right, uh, but on the basis of repentance and faith, which opens the gates of heaven uh, to all. But again, if a hardness of heart and an unrepentance is there, speaking that which Christ himself would speak. Uh, Verse 19 says, again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Again, something that could be un- misunderstood. Uh, this is not a magical formula to get whatever you want from God. Um, we can't scheme to say, "All right, let's uh, let's both agree um, that uh, we want double our salary and ask God for it, and He's got to do it." Um, no, indeed, it, it's a reminder that when we are in the mind of Christ, when we are praying uh, in God's will, that God, our heavenly Father, desires to to give us the bounty of of His blessings. Finally, in verse 20, it says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Uh, Again, the notion that um, there is no gathering of believers too small for God to pay attention to. Um, No congregation out there that is too small to be valuable in God's word. Indeed, um, even as we gather in our own homes or with uh, brothers and sisters in Christ around prayer in God's word, uh, God's presence is
0: truly with us. Pastor Nate Hill is the pastor at St. Michael's Lutheran Church in Winchester, Texas, helping us this morning with Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 20. Pastor Hill, thank you for your time today. Thank you. Jesus loves his little ones. He welcomes us into the kingdom as little children, wholly dependent upon him for every blessing. And he covers us with a righteousness that is his own received through the word, received in holy baptism, received into our very mouths with his body and his blood and holy communion. What a joy it is to be a child of God. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.